Well, in the early morning of September 8th, 2009, Marine Staff Sergeant Juan Rodriguez Chavez and Corporal Dakota Meyer were sitting in the dark outside of a village in the uh, Ganjgal Valley of Afghanistan, waiting. Chavez and Meyer, who was a scout sniper, were part of a Marine unit tasked with training local Afghans in the nation's fight against the Taliban. Several members of their unit, along with a collection of Afghan soldiers, had traveled up the narrow valley into the village in order to meet with the village's elders. The village was known to be hostile, but these soldiers were going to meet with the elders of the village in an attempt to convince them to support the Afghan government. Chavez and Meyer, they were tasked with watching the unit's trucks during the negotiations. And so there they sat in the dark, waiting. And then suddenly a burst of gunfire erupted over the two men's radios. It was an ambush. As their unit had entered into the village, every light immediately went dark and a rain of gunfire came pouring down from every side. As many as 50 Taliban fighters were firing on the unit from the mountainside surrounding the village and from the buildings inside the village, the unit was pinned down, trapped in a firestorm of bullets and rocket-propelled grenades. Air support was requested. It wasn't coming. Chavez and Meyer, watching it all take place from afar, requested three times to enter into the fray to help their comrades. Three times they were denied. It was too dangerous, they were told. Finally, tired of of waiting and refusing to sit by while their friends died helplessly, Chavez and Meyer took the initiative. They disobeyed orders, jumped into a Humvee, and tore up the road to the village with Chavez at the wheel and Meyer manning the machine gun turret up top exposed to enemy gunfire. They immediately came upon a group of wounded soldiers. Meyer jumped out and, braving the hail of bullets around him, helped to load up each one into the Humvee. With Chavez at the wheel, they drove the wounded back to safety, and then they went back into the village again. Again, they came upon a group of wounded soldiers. Again, Meyer jumped out of the Humvee and loaded the wounded. Again, Chavez drove the now bullet-riddled Humvee back to safety. And then they switched Humvees and drove back into the village again, a third time. This time they came upon a group of Marines, some wounded, who were desperately trying to escape the ambush. Chavez drove the Humvee directly into the line of enemy fire, turning the vehicle into a giant shield. A group of insurgents then attempted to rush the vehicle, and Meyer personally fought them off single-handedly while that battered group of Marines escaped to safety. Meyer would later say, I didn't think I was going to die. I knew I was. But with his and Chavez's help, they got that group of Marines to safety. By this point in the battle, Meyer was himself wounded. A piece of shrapnel had tore open a gash in his left arm. No one could have blamed them if at this point they had determined that they'd had enough. They were already heroes. They had already gone above and beyond in the line of duty to help their brothers, but there were still men in that village, four of whom were Meyer's friends. And he knew that they had been pinned down and couldn't get out. And so they decided to get into yet another Humvee and drive it back into the fight again, 
This time with the help of four Afghan vehicles. After another safe return, but again, having not rescued his four friends, Meyer then dismounted the Humvee and proceeded to go back into the village by foot, this time with the help of three other Marines and a Black Hawk helicopter that had finally arrived for support. As that Black Hawk provided cover overhead, it notified the soldiers that it had spotted what appeared to be the bodies of four servicemen slain in battle. Meyer knew that they were his friends. And he couldn't leave them behind. After all, he would later say, that's what you do for a brother. So along with the help of these three other Marines, he went in after their bodies, which by this point had been already stripped of their weapons, ammo, and armor. Bullets kicked up in the dirt around them as they moved from building to building in the village, and the enemy continued to take aim from what seemed like every window and doorway along the way. But one by one, the four men managed to carry the bodies of their slain comrades out of the village, returning them once again to safety. There's no doubt that these two men are heroes of the highest order. And they've been recognized as such. Staff Sergeant Chavez has received the Navy Cross for his heroism at the Battle of Gengal. That's the second highest honor that a Marine can receive. In fact, it's second only to the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor, by the way, that would happen to be the medal that was awarded to Corporal Meyer on September 15th. 2011 for, in the words of his official citation, quote, his unwavering courage and steadfast devotion to his U.S. and Afghan comrades in the face of almost certain death. What caused these men to do this? What would lead them to go back into battle into the face of almost certain death again and again over the course of six hours, actually? I think Corporal Meyer captures it well. In reference to his fallen comrades, he would later say, you didn't die, but you died with them. Part of you did. Leave no man behind is more than just words. No Marine Marine left behind is one of the mantras of the U.S. Marines. It declares that a Marine should be willing to do everything possible to bring their comrades back home, every single one. And it's that attitude that Corporal Meyer embodied that morning by going back into danger over and over again to make sure that every single one of his brothers made it out alive. No man left behind. That's a powerful idea. That's a noble idea. It's an idea that conjures up words like brotherhood, devotion, sacrifice, duty, honor. And it's a principle that Jesus expects his disciples to practice and their relationship with one another. Our passage for today is Matthew 18, 15-20. And for two weeks now, we have explored Jesus' answer to the disciples' question about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, 1, the disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They had been arguing about this question among themselves, and so they asked Jesus to settle the issue for them. They assumed that they were all pretty important, they were all pretty significant, but they wanted to know who was the greatest of them all. In his answer, Jesus tells them that there wasn't such a thing as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because all of his disciples, by virtue of their relationship with him, were the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples saw it was possible for some disciples to be more faithful than others, and they assumed that because of this, some disciples would be esteemed or exalted more than others. They assumed that some were more worthy of admiration and respect than others. 
and that these greater disciples would be recognized accordingly. They thought they'd be especially honored and cherished by God, more so than the rest. And Jesus says this is entirely wrong. Greatness doesn't work like this in the kingdom of heaven. The way into the kingdom of heaven is through humility, dependence, and faith. So this idea of of boasting, of being admired, is completely antithetical to what it takes to even enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is no greatest in the kingdom in the sense of admiration or esteem. Because, Jesus says in verse 3, all of his disciples actually have to humble themselves and become like children to even enter into the kingdom. So there is no greatest in that sense. But at the same time, in terms of value or worth, they're all great. Every single disciple who humbles himself like a child, they are the greatest, Jesus says in verse 4. To receive any of these little ones is to receive himself, Jesus says in verse 5. They have that kind of regard in the kingdom of heaven. And so because of that, verse 6, it is incredibly dangerous to cause any single one of his disciples to stumble. In other words, the disciples have it completely wrong when they ask this question about greatness. There is no more important or less important in God's kingdom because all of God's children are valued and cherished equally in His sight. Now again, true, there may be some who play a more strategic role than others in the advancement of God's kingdom. There may be some that are more important in this sense. And there may be some who are more or less pleasing to God based on their faithfulness and obedience to His Word. But in terms of worth or regard, every disciple who humbles himself or herself to depend on Jesus in faith is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's on the basis of this thought that Jesus then issues two expectations regarding how his disciples are to interact with one another in verses 7 to 14. We looked at those two expectations last week. In the first expectation, Jesus warns his disciples that they should not lead any other disciple astray. The disciples were concerned about their own greatness. They were fighting amongst themselves for pride of place. In response to this, Jesus says in verses 7 to 10 that they should be careful not to look down on any of his little ones. Because if they do, if they get arrogant, and if in their arrogance they despise their fellow disciples and so show such a blatant disregard for their well-being that they wind up tempting that disciple and causing them to fall into sin, Jesus says and they're, they're going to have to answer to God for that. And it isn't going to be pretty. Again, God loves all of His children. They all matter to Him. It would be better to be drowned in the sea than to cause any of His children to sin. He loves them that much. So the last thing that any of His disciples should do is allow their pride to get in the way and cause one of their fellow disciples to stumble. They should not lead any fellow disciple astray. That was the first expectation that Jesus issued for His disciples in this Extended response on greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In the second, Jesus indicated that he also expects his disciples to pursue any and every disciple who should happen to wander off. So not only should they be careful not to drive a fellow disciple away in their arrogance, but they should also be diligent to pursue those disciples who happen to wander off anyways. This is where we see the no man left behind principle outline. Jesus says that if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and he loses just one, he'll still leave the 99 remaining sheep on the hillside and then go looking for the one lost sheep. And then when the shepherd finds that sheep, he'll rejoice over that sheep more 
than over the 99 that remain the entire time on the hillside. Jesus says in verse 14, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The implication, of course, is that Jesus expects His disciples to leave no man behind. All of God's children matter. He doesn't want any of them to perish. And so even if 99 are safe and secure, and there's just one that's pinned down under heavy fire, if there's even one who is suffering under the relentless assault of the kingdom of Satan, even just one who is at risk of being lost, then they need to jump back in the Humvee, man the machine gun turret up top, and go screaming back into battle with guns blazing. That's the implication of Jesus' instruction on greatness in the kingdom of heaven. It means that the spiritual life of every disciple matters. And so there should be no Christian left behind. But how do we do this? What does it look like to leave no Christian behind? That's what Jesus is going to explain in the next part of his answer to the disciples, which is found in Matthew 18. 15 to 20. That's our passage again for this morning, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. In this passage, Jesus tells his disciples how he wants them to pursue one another in a way that honors the worth and value of every disciple. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Again, that's Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And Jesus says this If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Those are the instructions for how Jesus wants his disciples to pursue one another. That's what he wants them to do when one of them starts to go astray. Leave no Christian behind looks like that. So what should we take away from these instructions? What should we observe about what Jesus says here? Well, as I've thought about this passage, I've realized that there are probably two different ways that we could look at this. Jesus describes this process of restoration here, a process of restoration commonly referred to as church discipline. And if we wanted to take the most direct approach to this passage, then we could spend our time kind of examining the nuts and bolts of this process. Like if you look here, there are four different stages to this restoration process. In the first stage, the the disciple observes a brother or sister in sin. And then he or she confronts them about this sin, calls them to repentance individually, one-on-one. And if that doesn't work, then they take one or two witnesses with them, and then they confront them again in the second stage. If their brother or sister still doesn't repent, then they move on to the third stage, which is telling the church about this brother or sister's sin, so that the church can collectively call them to repentance. And then finally, in the fourth stage, if that brother or sister still does not repent, then they are regarded by that disciple as a Gentile or tax collector. Essentially, they're treated 
as if they were an unbeliever. If we wanted to, we could spend our time sort of just exploring the the nooks and crannies of that process. Meaning, we could just blitz that process with questions like, so so who does this? And then who is this directed at? And and when should it be done? We could ask questions like, how long should each step in this process be? And, And what are the considerations that we need to keep in mind at each step? We could ask those kinds of questions and then see what we find. In other words, we could treat this passage as if it were a manual for church discipline. Because really, that's what it is. And then we could explore the codes and the principles that govern and direct each step in the process. And I think that could be helpful. We could probably all stand to get a better grasp of just how this restoration process works. But as I've thought about this passage, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think that the problem for most of us is understanding how this process works specifically. So much as it is understanding what this process is, generally. You see, this restoration process, unfortunately, is not only highly controversial, but it's also incredibly neglected. And not just by churches. There are certainly many churches today that simply ignore the process outlined in this passage entirely. But it's not just churches that do this. Individual Christians do it as well. They ignore this too. And I think if we try to understand why this is so, it comes back to motivations and to some degree, perhaps misunderstandings. If you even think about this term, church discipline, it sounds intimidating, doesn't it? It sounds harsh. You look at the the final stage in this process, which is essentially excommunication, and it indicates that the church is is at least at some level an exclusive community. It's an exclusive community, not an inclusive one. It indicates that there is a standard that the believer must uphold in order to be considered a part of Christ's church. The tendency in the current church culture is to make the church as inclusive as, as possible. And that's not entirely bad, just to be clear. That desire comes from a, a right desire. It comes from a, a desire to emphasize grace. It comes from a desire to demonstrate to the world that we as Christians are not perfect. And that Christ welcomes everyone who turns to Him in faith, no matter the degree of sin in their background. That's good. The problem is that this desire to emphasize grace, though, is sometimes out of step with Jesus' demands for repentance. And so a passage like this one comes up, a passage like this which indicates that Jesus will exclude those who do not repent from membership in His church, and it cuts against the grain of the present church culture. What Jesus says here doesn't seem loving. It doesn't feel gracious. And so because of that, many churches or even many individual Christians will just ignore what Jesus says here. And that's very regrettable. Because this passage, what this passage outlines is Jesus' means of restoring wandering sheep back into His fold. Meaning that if a group of Christians doesn't practice this, then sheep are lost. That's bad. That's really bad. 
God doesn't want that. He doesn't want to lose any of his sheep. They're all precious to him. This thought that, quote, church discipline is, is, is unloving or ex- exclusive actually couldn't be farther from the truth. This restoration process is actually very loving. In fact, believe it or not, it's really about inclusion. The whole point of this process isn't to drive people away from the church. It's to keep them in. But again, a lot of times this is misunderstood. And so believers will often lack the motivation to follow through on this process even when they know how this works, even when they know the steps involved. And so what I want to talk about today is not so much about how this process works specifically, but what this process is generally. And I want to do this because I think if you can get your arms around what church discipline is, like if you can sort of think about it a bit more abstractly and get a feel for what this process is all about, then not only are you, not only are you going to get a better sense of how to do this, but you're going to want to do it as well. That's really my goal here. I want you to come away from this message. It's actually going to be two messages. But I, I want you to come away from these messages recognizing the goodness of this restoration process. I don't want you to be ashamed by it. I don't want you to think that you have to apologize for this passage to outsiders. I don't want you to cringe when it comes up in conversations in the church. I want you to see the beauty of what this is, the nobility in this process. The one who practices church discipline, they're not some kind of hypocritical Pharisee. No, they're the Marine who jumps into the Humvee and goes tearing into battle against a vastly superior force because that disciple pinned down under the assault of Satan, they're a brother, and we don't leave brothers behind. We fight to make sure that they all make it home. That's what church discipline is. And I want you to see it that way so that you can embrace it and engage in it if necessary. Do so wholeheartedly, without fear and without shame. So I want to try to give you a sense of what church discipline is. And the way I want to do this is by describing it with six adjectives, which are based on observations that we can make in this passage. And, and just to give you a heads up again, we're, we're not going to have time to get to all these adjectives today. So today we're just going to talk about the first three. But there are six in total. We're going to get to the first three this week, and then we'll look at the second three for six in total next week. What is church discipline like? I would describe it in these six ways. First, church discipline is compassionate. Church discipline is compassionate. One of the major concerns about church discipline is that it is unloving, that it's harsh, and nothing could be further from the truth. Church discipline is loving, compassionate care. You see this first in the way that Jesus talks about the goal of the church discipline process. There are several side effects of church discipline, and these side effects can be important factors for a church to take into consideration when practicing church discipline. For example, one side effect of church discipline is that it helps preserve the church's testimony to the world. Matthew, or Jesus says in Matthew 5.16 that He wants uh, 
us to let our light shine before others so that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. In other words, Jesus' disciples are supposed to have a reputation for righteousness. We're supposed to be set apart, holy in this sense. Unbelievers should be able to tell by looking at the conduct of our lives that we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. If you're paying attention to what happens in the fourth and final stage of church discipline where the unrepentant sinner is disassociated from the body of Christ, then you can see that church discipline will certainly help a church to maintain this testimony before the world. After all, it's going to be hard for the world to call the church a bunch of hypocrites if, church, if the church is voluntarily disassociating itself from unrepentant members. Effectively saying, they don't belong to us. That unrepentant person calling themselves a Christian, they don't represent Christ. So there's that benefit to church discipline. Church discipline also protects the church. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. If the ungodly are allowed to abide in the body of Christ, not only will they corrupt the members of the church with their false thinking, but they will actually embolden others to participate in their sin. This is why in 1 Timothy 5.20, Paul encourages Timothy to rebuke unrepentant elders publicly, to teach the rest to, uh, be, to abandon their sin. He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Obviously, the third and fourth stages to discipline will certainly have that effect on the church as well. It will protect a church, not only by removing those who would corrupt its membership from the inside out, but by teaching a church to fear God as well. Those are both side effects to church discipline, and they're important secondary reasons to take, this, uh, take church discipline into consideration when the church deliberates over particular instances of sin in a believer's life. However, these are not the primary motives for church discipline. No, the goal for church discipline, as Jesus points out here in Matthew 18, is restoration. Restoration. You see this highlighted particularly in verse 15, the very first verse of his instruction. Jesus says, if your, brother or, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've gained your brother. That's the goal of church discipline, to gain back what was lost. It's to restore a brother. Again, you look at at when Jesus brings this instruction up, and that's the context. Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, and then he ends by saying, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's talking about the worth of every one of his disciples, and then he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. The purpose of this process isn't to beat up some poor wounded sheep. It's to bring them back to safety when they're having trouble getting there on their own. In other words, this process isn't driven by hypocritical pride. I think that's what a lot of people think happens in church discipline. One disciple comes to another, and then they just kind of belittle them for their sin. But as we saw last week, it's precisely that attitude that Jesus is warning His disciples to avoid when He brings this whole process up. So that's not the attitude that's supposed to drive this. No, the attitude that drives this process is love. 
As the believer runs the race to heaven, as they run this race to heaven, longing for the crown of life that Jesus is going to give him when he sees him face to face, and then he sees this runner next to him collapse in exhaustion. Or perhaps they even stumble over some obstacle and fall. He doesn't just keep sprinting in some kind of careless disregard for their faith. He doesn't look down on them and think, well, you know, the weak don't deserve to make it to the finish line. They don't want it enough. And he certainly doesn't think to himself, you know, oh, well, the more glory for me when I finish first. No, he loves that fellow racer enough that he stops. He kneels down, picks up that brother, throws his arm over his shoulder, and then he helps him walk to the finish line. That's the mindset of church discipline. It's compassion and care. No man left behind. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, the book of Hebrews says. And it continues, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And why is that? Why do we do this? Why do we meet together and encourage one another? The answer is in the very next verse, Hebrews 10, 26-27. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's why we don't neglect meeting together. That is why we encourage one another in the faith. It's because if we stumble and fall, and if we remain in that state, if we don't cross the finish line, then we can expect not salvation, but judgment. And we love one another too much to let that happen to one of our brothers or sisters. And so we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and together we run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's compassion. It's love that motivates this process. And a church that practices church discipline needs to remember this. To whatever degree they take the church's testimony before the world into consideration as they discipline a member, or to whatever degree they consider how an act of discipline might purify or protect the body, the bottom line should always be about the restoration of the brother or sister in sin. That's the question they need to be asking themselves at every step in the process. How can we win this brother? How can we bring them back? Because that's the primary goal of church discipline, to restore a brother or sister in Christ. It's an act of compassion. In fact, you see this not only in the goal of church discipline, not just in its motivations, but in its methods as well. What you see in this passage is that every consideration is taken to correct the sinning brother as kindly and as gently as possible. For example, the first two steps of this process are done privately. In other words, pains are taken to make sure that the sinning believer is not put to shame in their sin. The point here is not to humiliate them or to embarrass them by broadcasting their sin publicly. It's to call them to repentance. And so they don't go running to other people to tell them about their sin. They handle it personally. They don't delegate it. They don't get other people involved right away. They handle it themselves. 
so as to mitigate any embarrassment that can be caused by the brother's sin. And then when the brother doesn't listen, when they overhear, that's the meaning for the word refuse to listen in verse 17, by the way, overhear. And it implies that a person is is willfully, stubbornly refusing to take the brother's correction into account. When that happens, the brother then goes and gets others to serve as witnesses, verse 16. And those aren't witnesses to the sin. They're witnesses to the confrontation. These are extra brothers who who can confirm that what the confronting disciple is saying is true. The sinning brother blows off the one who confronts him. He says to himself, well, what does that guy know? Just ignores him. And then taking this arrogance into account, the first brother goes and gets witnesses to add weight to his words in hopes of bringing his brother to repentance. But again, even this is done while taking the well-being of their brother into consideration. He doesn't go straight to the church so that everyone can confront this brother right away. No, he gets just one or two witnesses at first. He gets enough people to add weight to what he's saying without unnecessarily embarrassing his brother in the process. I mean, back in verses 7 to 10, Jesus warned the disciples against running over a weaker brother. He implored them not to offend one of his little ones. Well, right here, you can see that every pain is taken to heed that instruction. This process considers the weakness of a brother. And it pursues them while being careful to avoid any potentially stu- potential stumbling block to that brother's restoration. Even the very last state of this restoration process, where the sinning brother is essentially cut off from fellowship, even that is done as an act of compassion. It seems harsh. And it, seems, and it is severe. It's done only as a last resort. And it's done not to exclude the brother, though, but to hopefully restore them. Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 4-5, when he implores the Corinthians to cast out a man engaged in willful, unrepentant sin. And he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But why? Paul continues, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the aim, even of this last process. The aim is to to send a strong message to that brother, to warn them that they are in danger of being cast into hell if they persist in this sin. And that message is delivered not to wound them, not ultimately anyways, but to restore them. Like excommunication should hurt. Really, it should frighten the excommunicated. It should scare them. Because its purpose is to make them think, maybe I'm not saved. If I don't repent, then maybe I am going to hell. That's the message it's intended to send. And in this sense, its purpose is to wound. But it does so, so that the unrepentant sinner might consider the consequences of their sin more seriously and then repent. It's like Paul told the Corinthians uh, when he told them again in, for, in 2 Corinthians 7, 8-10, to For even if I made you grieve with my letter, this is, so he's, he's, writing this, he's writing them a, a second time, he's writing them again, 2 Corinthians, and he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is I rejoice, not because you were grieved, 
but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul would sometimes wound his brothers, but not because that was his goal. He didn't, he was, his, his ultimate goal wasn't to wound them. No, he did it so that the wound might produce a godly grief, which would then manifest itself in repentance and salvation instead of death. This is actually why I tend to balk at referring to this process here in Matthew 18 as church discipline. I think for most of us, when we think of this word discipline, we, think of, we don't think of correction, which is actually what discipline is meant to communicate. What we think about is punishment. We say church discipline, but what we hear is church punishment. And that's not what this is. Even at the end, where there is this step that is meant to wound, that's meant to hurt, to inflict pain, the purpose isn't ultimately punitive. The purpose isn't to wound, it's to correct and restore. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, it says in Hebrews 12, 11. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's the purpose of this final stage of discipline. It's to restore. To wound, yes, but to wound to the point of producing this peaceful fruit of righteousness. Church discipline, even at the final stage, is an act of compassion. So that's the first way that I would describe church discipline. Church discipline is compassionate That's very important. This is so often overlooked. It's compassionate. The second adjective that I would attach to church discipline is this. Number two, tenacious. Church discipline is tenacious. If you think about it, the process that Jesus describes here is a very slow one on one hand. After all, the disciple isn't discarded after one warning or even two. In fact, it isn't even a three-strike rule. It's not three strikes and you're out. It's four, actually. The unrepentant sinner has at least four distinct opportunities to turn away from their sin. And that's, a, that's a, if we're thinking that each step in this process includes only one conversation, which it probably doesn't. I mean, in verse 17, the entire church is supposed to plead with the individual. Unless that's happening one time in a corporate setting, which seems unlikely, then it's Obviously, there's going to be multiple conversations with this person, at least at the third stage. And if it's happening at that step, then it's probably safe to assume that this is happening at every other step in the process. Point is, this is not a process that's intended to move quickly. It's supposed to be slow. Again, because the purpose of this isn't to kick people out, it's to keep them in. So this this is a process that's going to be conducted with great patience. And yet, at the same time, it's also very relentless. It doesn't move fast. But that's not to say that it isn't urgent or that it isn't pursued with great intensity. After all, this process is born out of a deep love for the disciple. It's initiated because of their great worth in God's eyes. It's done because every sheep is precious in His sight. And what this means is that the disciple who initiates this process, he's not easily deterred. They don't go confront their brother once, get rejected, and then throw their hands up in the air and go, well, I've tried, or, well, I guess I've done my duty, I don't have to do that anymore. That's not what's happening there. No, they're they're rejected 
And then they come back with one or two more, bro- uh, one or two more brothers in order to make another appeal. And then when that appeal is rejected, they go grab the church and then they come back again. I mean, just like Corporal Meyer didn't go back into the village, not just two or three times, but even four and five, even switching to three different Humvees in the process, and then grabbing three other Marines and going in on foot the fifth time, all because he was absolutely dead set on bringing his friends home. So it is to be with Christ's disciples. They are determined to bring their brothers and sisters home. And so they're not quickly discouraged. They don't quit at the first sign of adversity. They keep coming, and they keep coming. And even after the battle has raged on for hours, and they're tired, and they're wounded, they go back into the fight yet again. Again, they're relentless. That's how you should understand this process. It's a slow one. But don't mistake the slowness for apathy. It's a sign of determination and patience. You understand, this is not some kind of weak need devotion to one another that Jesus calls us to. This is love with teeth. It's a love so fierce, so earnestly concerned with the well-being of your fellow disciples that you'll fight for them. It's the kind of love that when it sees a wolf snatch a sheep and then begin to carry it away, it grabs a staff and goes out to contend with the wolf for the life of the sheep. It's a kind of love that when it sees a sheep stranded on a, on a fragile and rocky precipice, it braves the precipice, risks life and limb to rescue the sheep and bring it home. And then when it grabs the sheep, and the sheep gives a good headbutt, it doesn't say, well, fine, you stupid sheep, stay here and die. No, it holds on to the sheep anyways. It lets it bite and kick and headbutt or whatever, but it doesn't let go. It holds the sheep and it carries it home. I have to say that one of the first things that you will learn when you start ministering to people is sheep bite. Or if they don't bite, they'll at least give you a good headbutt. And just like some animals, you know, like, just like some animals will get really aggressive when they're wounded because they're frightened, they're scared. That's how a lot of people will act when they're caught in sin. They're caught in sin. And their life is a mess because of it. Emotionally, they can be a wreck. I mean, they can be frustrated and angry because they got, they got all kinds of idols that they want and they're not getting. Or, or they're sad because they keep getting disappointed even when they do get the idols that they want. And then on top of that, they're often wrestling with feelings of guilt over their sins. Some people will respond to that guilt with anger. They'll lash out and start blaming everyone else for their sin. Others, they'll collapse into a pit of despair. So emotionally, they can be very unstable. And it's made worse by the chaos they've created in their life because of their sin. You start putting your hands in there. You can expect that a finger is going to get bitten. You're going to get kicked a couple times. But that doesn't mean you stop. If you love that disciple, you endure all of that to rescue them. So yeah, if the disciple is pinned down by Satan and his forces, you come in to rescue them. When you do that, expect that you're gonna, uh, he's going to take aim at you as well. You're probably going to get shot a couple of times. That doesn't mean you quit. You keep fighting, even, the fa- even in the face of a, de- of a determined foe. This is the kind of love that you see on display in church discipline. It's a tenacious, heroic love. It's sacrificial love. 
It cherishes the brother or sister to the degree that it will put oneself in harm's way and do so on multiple occasions in order to rescue them. So it's tenacious. And yet while it is tenacious, it is also peaceable. That's our third adjective for church discipline today. Church discipline is peaceable. In other words, church discipline contends for the spiritual life of brothers and sisters, but it does so without being contentious. I think this is another hesitation that a lot of Christians have in regards to church discipline. It seems contentious. After all, you're going up and telling someone that they're in sin. And then when they don't listen to you, you come back with a posse, and there's this whole back and forth between the two of you that can seem like you're picking a fight, and a lot of people don't want to do this. They're non-confrontational. And I think that we need to be clear. While church discipline is confrontational, and there's simply no way to avoid that, because the whole point is to contend for your brother by confronting them over their sins. So it's undeniably confrontational. Uh, uh, confrontational. But we shouldn't confuse this with being contentious. In other words, this isn't picking a fight. Confrontation occurs in church discipline. Admonishment happens. But when that admonishment is rebuffed, again, the disciple doesn't quit. They keep going. They still persist in the pursuit of their brother. They keep confronting them repeatedly if necessary. And that means that the whole process can become contentious if the sinning brother doesn't take it, take this correction too kindly. But that's not the attitude of the one who's doing the confronting. They're not confronting their brother because they're just sort of naturally pugnacious. They're not doing it for the thrill of the fight. Some people are like that. They're just naturally argumentative. They love a good fight. They enjoy the challenge of, of a good argument. It gets their mind going. It gets your adrenaline pumping. They enjoy it. But that's not what's happening here. Again, the one who engages in this process rightly Biblically, they do it not to attack their brother, but to heal them. They do it for their benefit. And you see this demonstrated by the fact that they will confront their brother, but they'll do so peaceably as well. Once again, you see this demonstrated in the way the disciple confronts their brother. Proverbs 15.1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Well, that's what you see here when the disciple first goes in private to confront his brother. And then only with one or two witnesses after that, before finally turning to a public rebuke only as a matter of last resort. As it says in Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. I mean, if you want to get someone defensive, like you want to get someone really ticked off so that they come out of the corner swinging, well then gossip about their sin. Spread it around. Let them be the last person that you tell about their sin. But that's not what you see here. Here the confronter handles the issue discreetly. They go to the offender first. That's a calculated, intentional approach which is intended to mitigate the friction caused by this confrontation. Sin is attacked, but the confrontation is designed to prevent a fight by striking the blow as softly and as gently as possible. Again, the point is restoration. And so the one who confronts is careful in taking aim at the sin without shooting the sinner in the process. 
Like a skilled surgeon, they go after the cancer while being careful not to cut at any vital organs. They don't attack, they confront. And there's a difference between those two. And when the unrepentant brother pushes back, they persist. Again, they don't just quit right away. They keep going. They'll try to remove that sin, even if it means there's a fight. But at the same time, verse 17, if after every option and resource has been exhausted, if that brother still persists in their sin, well, then the disciple lets them go. They're persistent, but that shouldn't be confused with being stubborn. If the brother or sister is determined to stay in their sin after the disciple has pursued every reasonable course of action to see them restored, then they don't keep fighting. They let them go. It's like the instructions that Jesus gave back in Matthew 10 when He told His disciples, quote, As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive to you or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. He says, go and proclaim the gospel to them, but don't, don't fight with them over it. If they say that they don't want to hear, keep moving. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12, 17-18. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. God has called us to peace. Our message is a message of peace. And so Jesus expects that His disciples will proclaim it peaceably. So if we pursue a brother, and if we have exhausted every step available in this process of restoration, and it still doesn't, uh, you know, the the brother doesn't uh, listen, they don't respond, understand that it doesn't advance the gospel to stand toe-to-toe with them and keep trading shots. No, we let them go. And that's not for lack of love. Again, the, the, the major reason for that final step, even that final step where we let them go, it's still to call them to repentance. But if you think about it, the way that that final call is issued, it's issued with silence. We don't turn into telemarketers. We don't start doing weekly phone calls as they're sitting down to dinner with their family saying, you need to repent still, you need to repent still, you need to repent still. We don't annoy them into repentance. No, the final step is to cut off fellowship and to stop the confrontation process entirely and to more or less let the silence speak for itself. Can you see, this church discipline is, is not only tenacious, but it's also peaceable. It's characterized by a steady, calm, controlled relentlessness. Like a marathon runner who just keeps plodding to the finish line a little bit at a time, the discipline process proceeds steadily, calmly, softly, again, doing everything necessary to remove an unnecessary offense in the confrontation process. So, compassionate, tenacious, and peaceable. Those are the three ways to describe the church discipline process. And that puts us halfway through this list of six. Next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the remaining three. Tonight, we're going to spend some time discussing how to apply the three principles that we talked about today. Again, earlier I said that if we understand what church discipline is generally, then we should be able to understand better how it works specifically. So taking these principles in hand, 
We're going to talk about the process of church discipline in a little greater detail tonight. In the meantime, though, I want to close with this thought. In a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's table together. And when we do this, one of the things that we declare is that we are members of one another. I hope you understand this. When we take the Lord's table, one of the things that we declare is that we are one body. That's why there's one bread, right? One, it's, it's, we're one body. There's one Lord, one baptism, one faith. And when we take the table, we declare that we are also one body, that we belong to one another. And this means that the people sitting around you, the people who are going to be taking the table with you, they're family. Do you realize that? This is your family. And they're your family in a closer sense than even your own flesh and blood. This is your eternal family. These are brothers and sisters that you're going to be spending eternity with. So the question that I think you should reflect on as we close this morning is this. Do you live with one another in this way? You know, over the past month, we've seen Jesus clearly communicate some very challenging expectations for how He wants us to live with one another. Do you live with these brothers and sisters in this way? Will you surrender your rights to keep them from stumbling? And if they start to go astray, will you run after them? How far are you willing to go to make sure that they stay safe? Do you love them like a brother or sister? Do you see them as one of God's children? And do you cherish them accordingly? Or do you see them as just another insignificant face in the crowd? Jesus wants you to cherish them. He wants you to sacrificially love them, show compassion for them, pick them up when they fall, pursue them when they run away. Will you do that? When you're taking the Lord's table, one of the things that you're declaring is that you will. That's a pretty awesome thought to consider. Personally, I think that's that's kind of exciting to think about. But it's also very daunting as well. This kind of love is not easy. And the Lord's table, it's not something to enter into lightly. So as we close, let's close by praying that God would help us to live with one another with this kind of love. Let's pray.